Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. This is episode 161 of the show, and it's June the 6th, 2023, as I'm recording this on a Tuesday before it goes out on the Friday. So what's on in today's interview? Well, I am talking to David Biggs, who, as well as being an old friend of mine, is a lawyer, a diplomat and historical martial arts senior instructor with the Tattershall School of Defense. He's known in the SCA as Aaron Harper, where he is a master of defense and a laurel. Yes, we will define those terms in the show. He's also the organizer, with two previous guests on the show, Lisa Lucito and Monica Gordio, of Lord Baltimore's Challenge, one of my favorite historical martial arts events. So, that's coming up in the interview. Before then, cool stuff from Sword People. Well, this week I'm doing a live Q&A and get-together on Sunday, 7pm UK time. You can find the details in the Sal space on Sword People. So the Sal is basically like a forum thing, which is called The Sal, and it's the sort of general hangout and chat space. So... I'll be posting the details to that space um, on the day, Sunday the 7th, that is this Sunday. There will be another similar event on Sunday the 25th, so in two weeks' time, which will probably end up being more of a class, but we'll plan the details of it on this Sunday session so that people who show up get to choose what we do, which is a good reason to show up, of course. So I am planning to make these things fairly regular if attendance is good. Probably the most popular thread on the platform at the moment is what's your favorite sword with everything represented. So basically when people come to join sword people, they get asked what's your favorite sword and they can put a photograph or whatever of their favorite sword and everyone gets all geeky about swords, which is lovely. So um, this week we've had a gorgeous pattern welded Viking sword um, and an antique saber as well as the usual rapiers, long swords, messes and so on. You should join us there if that's your thing, swordpeople.com. What I'm working on this week, well, uh, one thing I'm doing is preparing to go to the International Rapier Seminar in Poland next week. Um, so basically thinking about my class, making sure I've got all my gear sorted out, checking with the organizers about where I'm going to stay, all that sort of thing, which actually takes up quite a lot of mental space, um, not least because I've never been to Poland before, so this will be very exciting. But I'm also working on the Abradzari material in preparation for my trip to America in July. Um, all the plays are translated and I've thought about them and written about them. And I've sent all that to Jessica Finley. And this evening we are getting together uh, on Zoom to plan our approach to the material. So we're going to get quite a bit of preparation done before I show up in Kansas on July the 3rd. And of course, July the 4th, we won't be doing any work at all. We should be doing proper... Um, American Traitors Day when they abandoned their true British nature and went off and became independent. And that didn't work out terribly well for them, did it? Of course, I am joking. Hooray to my American friends. So, uh, speaking of America, I'm just a reminder that I will be in Madison teaching a seminar on July the 15th and 16th called Maya versus the Italians, a weekend with Guy Windsor and Chris Vanslenbrook. 
where we'll be comparing Maya's rapier with Catafera's rapier and Maya's longsword with Fiore's longsword. And you can find the seminar at guywindsor.net forward slash Madison. Madison as in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, Duelist Companion 2nd Edition, I've got the full-colour, beautiful hardback proofs back from the printers, and I must say the one from Book Vault looks absolutely amazing. The print quality is superb. Very, very sharp. So I'll be closing the pre-orders on Monday, the June the 12th, and making the ebook, paperback, and hardback available for regular sale on swordschool.shop only later in the week. The book is only available from my shop for at least a month because it's much, much better for me if you buy from me directly rather than through a retailer. So I am not going to be putting it out on all the usual platforms for at least a little while so that um, people can get used to buying from me directly because it is the future. Now, as normally happens when I get a book out, um, I sort of switch gears completely and do something completely unrelated. So I am currently... Actually, most of my working time this week is fixing the exterior front door on my house, which is actually a huge project because the it's an old teak frame with two doors um, and there's an interior door, so we don't need to worry about security while the door is being fixed. But this teak frame needs to be refixed back into its aperture as well as two large double glazed units being ordered and replaced because the old double glazed units were all kind of they had they all steamed up on the inside so you can't get them clean um all the locks and hinges and everything being restored or replaced i mean i i went a little bit mad and i started disassembling the hinges to replace the washers inside the hinges and i rejiggered the springs inside the door handles and yes um i think i maybe need to get this under control a bit or it's going to take forever um something should just actually be replaced rather than restored but I mean, for instance, on the, the door that's usually closed and the, the door you normally go in and out of where it locks into that, the area around the striker plate, as is often the case, was all mashed up, I guess, from people leaving the striker. Uh, the, so the, the thing that actually holds the doors together when the doors are locked, if that is left out and the wind blows it shut, it smashes it against the wooden door. And so that area was just a wreck. So um, I guess I have put my antique restoration skills to good use and um that has now been patched with six wooden patches i will put pictures in this week's newsletter because it's, it's a ridiculous amount of work um we meaning to sort the door out since we moved in in april 2019 but the project just kept ballooning um so well you know if we're replacing the door we originally were just going to replace it with one of these modern upvc steel framed secure things which are ugly as fuck but you know they're kind of the modern standard but i thought well if we're replacing the door well maybe we should build out the porch a bit and then maybe redo the double glazing on the front of the house and then what about the back of the house and so on and so on so it was just getting ridiculous so instead of actually just getting on and fixing the door that was there the notion of sorting out the front door became just it just became this ridiculous spiraling into some multi-five-figure project, which was just far too much money for a door. Uh, yes, okay, we were talking about all the other double glazing as well, but it's like, it's ridiculous. So I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to bloody fix it. So I'm in the process of fixing it. And hopefully, hopefully, 
by the next time I talk to you, it will all be in place and all looking good and opening smoothly and closing cleanly and locking properly and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, that is actually what I'm mostly working on at the moment. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the interview. I'm here today with David Biggs, who is a lawyer, a diplomat and a historical martial arts instructor with the Tattershall School of Defence. Beg pardon, a senior instructor with the Tattershall School of Defence. <laughs> He's known in the SCA as Aaron Harper, where he is a master of defence and a laurel. He's also the organiser, with two previous guests on the show, Lisa Lucito and Monica Gaudio, of Lord Baltimore's Challenge, one of my favourite historical martial arts events. So, without further ado, David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Guy. It's great to be here. I love talking to you. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. And um, we actually, we've spent rather more time in person lately over the last five years or so than like in the previous 15 years put together. This is true. <laughs> is it's so true. Um, just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? So I'm in the D.C. metro area, just north of D.C., uh, Washington, right. D.C., United States. Which is kind of where you'd expect a sort of State Department person to live. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes, in the corridors of power. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you want other, to other, other, otherwise known as a malarial swamp that nobody wanted and so it got turned exactly. into the capital. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Inside the Beltway, which is all swamp-like. Excellent. So, um, take us back a few decades. Um, how did you get into historical martial arts? Sure thing. So, back in college, I took several years of Shotokan Karate. Um, and as I was leaving college, I, I married a woman who was getting involved in the SCA. Uh, I had gone to a lot of rent fairs, so I kind of knew who the SCA was a little bit. Um, when I got in, I didn't really care to fence because what I saw was a bunch of people using epes with bell guards and hoo hoo ha ha ho ho and, you know, just very swashbucklering yeah. it. Um, and then a friend of mine, David Watson, introduced me to the, uh, the three Elizabethan fencing manuals. And suddenly I thought, oh, wow. So they, they wrote this stuff down. You Just know, they, for the people who aren't familiar, what are the three Elizabethan fencing manuals? Um, that's, are there three? Anyway, um, George Silver. Oh, yeah, that's right. George Silver, Giacomo de Grassi's translation, which isn't yeah. technically uh, uh, an Elizabethan manual, and uh, Saviolo's manual were all collected together into one book called the three Elizabethan fencing manuals. Yeah. Turner and Soper, correct? Turner and Soper, correct. Yeah. That, that was a fantastically useful book because it somehow managed to find its way into all sorts of university libraries. And a lot of people, the first treatise they ever saw would, was like Silver in Turner and Soper or Degrassi in Turner and Soper. Well, exactly. And so I, I took, I saw that, uh, I got to be friends with, uh, with Brian Wilson. And so he handed me a, a sword that looked vaguely uh, uh, renaissance and so i started looking into saviolo and trying to make saviolo work right this is before we i think we have now come to the conclusion that saviolo was more of a side sword master more of a cut and thrust uh in fact i've yeah. docu i've documented his entire book straight out of the bolognese masters so i think he okay. had some influence there but i was trying to make it work with with an epe right <laughs> yeah that's gonna yeah. work so that as I was doing that and doing more digging, I came across plates from Capafero, and mm -hmm. this is the late 90s, I believe. Um, then, uh, what was it, SSI, uh, Sword Symposium International 2000 happened in Houston, mm -hmm. and I was living in Houston, so I was like, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to go around the corner and see what this is about. And this was uh, Greg and Greg Melee and, uh, oh my God, who all was there? There's a whole stack of people, but also... 
Uh, Reinhardt was there, uh, who started the, what was it, uh, Hakka Historical Armed Combat Association. That's Hank Reinhardt, correct? Hank Reinhardt, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so a lot of the, the people who had been also trying to do this, in some cases better, in some cases about the same as me, were all there. So this kind of opened a lot of our eyes to, we're all doing this. Yeah. And I think a lot of connections were made at that event. Um, that was also the event of a very famous spoon fecting, uh, uh, episode. <laughs> we will not discuss the spoon on the podcast because right. it will ruin, it will ruin it for people who may wish to recreate the it's spoon It's true, but it was a magnificent, a magnificent yeah, yeah. spoon fecting combat. Um, so at some point I got introduced to, uh, to William Wilson and Gary and to Roger. Gary Chalak. Gary uh, Chalak and, and Roger Siggs. Yeah. And they had just started pushing um, side sword in the SCA. And I, I had gotten a white scarf, which was a, a, the highest level of, of rapier combat in, in uh, the SCA at that time. And so I was, you, I, just a second. You got uh, the white scarf, the highest thing of SCA rapier combat at the time. This is in the late 90s. And you do that by basically trying to do Saviola with an epee. I did it by winning tournaments. So Ah, Okay. No one, no one really knew anything. I was trying to study, and I was actually giving classes and stuff, trying, mm -hmm. trying to make it all work in my head. Um, so they thought, well, I was winning tournaments, I was beating people, and I was actually putting some work in. So some people thought, okay, well, that's pretty cool. I was still known as that guy who fights real weird. Because um, <laughs> everyone else was training in the, in the French uh, epée style, basically, right? Right. Um, so I was convinced that we were going to kill each other with this side sword experiment, and then Roger and I had a day together and I started seeing, no, there's something to this. This is, this is interesting and this is fun. So I became one of their sidekicks trying to push it throughout the SCA and wrote rules for several of the kingdoms and we finally got it going. So that was the early 2000s and that's when Jarek Swinger and Bill Wilson were working on their Capafero uh, translation and were kind yeah. of feeding it out to us. That's when I joined I, Tattershaw. Just, just for the record... If they hadn't have produced that translation of Capafero when they did, I may very well have ended up being a Fabris man rather than a Capafero man. You right? It was super important and useful work. And a massive shout out to both Bill and Jarek for that. I've even said, this is an interesting point, it's no longer as true as it was, but I've even said you can tell when people got into Western martial arts by what they were studying. Absolutely. But because there was us doing the Italian rapier. And then soon after that, uh, Tobler came up with the German stuff and suddenly everyone wanted to do German. Then Puck got big with the Spanish and everyone wanted to do Spanish. So you could kind of tell where they started in, in a three yeah. or four year range, you know? Um, yeah, so I joined Tattershaw. Uh, they made me an instructor. I started helping with the interpretation. Sorry, just, again, I, can't, I keep interrupting you for clarifications, but right. I'm thinking the average listener probably doesn't know what Tattershaw is. So oh, if you good just point, define good it. Point. Tattershall School of Defense. Um, it started in Arizona. Will, Bill Wilson was the one who I think started it in the late 90s. Uh, now, Gary Shalak is our president. It's run mostly out of Southern California. I'm kind of their wandering instructor because... Um, and it's like a historical martial arts club. Basically. It's a historical martial arts uh, uh, school. So right. we started out teaching the side sword manuals and the rapier, but now we have people who are doing uh, Swetnam, who are doing uh, a German saber, who are doing, you know, so we've got a lot of people now studying different things. Kind of like Chicago, but not quite as organized. We have study groups around the US that are all kind of giving us their thoughts of what they're doing. And we're trying to get ourselves more organized and, and, and more together. 
So that's Tattersall. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And um, you and I met somewhere in there, early 2000s. I, it was Lansing, 2001 or 2002 or both. There you go. There you go. So I went to, those, I went to two Lansings. I only went to two. Um, you were teaching it there. Uh, I, I can't remember now because a lot of those classes, if, if you recall, a lot of those classes started blending together because we kept doing the same classes again and again, you know, intro to Capoferro, intro to whatever. So I, I no longer remember which classes were at WMAW, which ones were at, at, at Lansing, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of what got me kicking off. Um, then I grabbed Dalagokie. Uh, Wilson, Bill was, was translating Dalagokie and the single sword. And that just, that just blended. That made my heart sing, you know. So that's still, I don't do it as much as I should, but that is still my favorite sword style. Okay. Yeah, I, I hadn't had you, in my head you're a rapier man, but, but clearly I'm wrong. No, no, you're right, because people keep wanting me to teach rapier, and I, and I keep having to put aside my side sword to, to focus on rapier, because that's what everyone's asking for. Okay. Uh, but Dalagokie for the win. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm still kicking myself. I didn't have the £3,000 I needed to buy a, an edition of Dalagokie and Degrassi bound together in a single volume sometime around 1600 and I could have had it for 3,000 quid. And I'm like, I, but I didn't have 3,000 quid and, and I need my kidneys. I know, I know. <laughs> no, I've seen a few that I've missed out on. I only have one uh, historical manual personally, but... Uh, is, that Mar- is that Marcelli? Is that Marcelli, yeah. Yeah, very nice. Um, okay, so we met at Lansing and obviously... Oh, we're still friends now, so things must have gone quite well. Um, but you sort of disappeared. You fell off the radar for about 15 years. What happened? So around this time, uh, I had some, some, some mighty waves in my marriage, and we went through a divorce. So around 2003 and four is when that was happening. After that is when I started actually increasing my activity because I was going two or three weekends a month to teach all around the U.S. So I've taught in... 25 different states around the U.S. and most of that wow. was in that time period between 2004 and 2006. I was just going right. everywhere to 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 spread the good word. Um, because of that divorce, I had a therapist kind of helping me work my way through it and and all the self esteem issues that come with divorce. And she was saying, "You are undereducated for your intelligence level. You need to you need to go back to grad school. This would help you refocus. Okay. This would help you find yourself. You know." So I started looking into different, different ideas and I landed on law school. And so in 2006, I entered law school and I tried to keep studying, but no, <laughs> that, no. that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, so swords or law, you can really only do one at a time. Right. I, I got yeah. on law review and that, that's kind of like a part-time job on top what does that of mean? law school. So law review, the law review manuals here in the U.S. are the, the, the academic published manuals of, of law. Okay. And every, most universities, I think every one of them, has their own law review manual where professors will, will send uh, articles and we will choose which ones we want to publish. And then the students are the ones who do the editing and make sure that the footnotes are correctly cited. And, right. And then we put them out. So Minnesota's Law Review, at the time, it was number 10 in the country, uh, possibly in the world. But it was really highly rated. I was so thrilled to get on it. But it was also an entire part-time job on top of law school by itself. So everything else just went away. Right. And I'm right in thinking that, I mean, because I've seen quite a lot of American TV shows that have lawyers in them. And all the best lawyers were like editor of the Law Review at Harvard. 
So this is what we're talking about. Kind of. I mean, so it's like good for your career to be involved in the law review. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. A lot of the people who are in law review, though, go into to education. They they are law okay. prof- professors. Right. Um, Barack Obama was the the senior editor of Harvard Law Review, for instance. Well, there um, we go. Case in point. Yeah, <laughs> didn't do but, his career any harm at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so it's it is it can be a big deal. And one of the things it really does do, and this will play into our conversation in a little bit, is it helps you focus on how to read the words as they are, not as you want them to be. Right. Oh, God, that is so useful. Yeah. How many times you're reading something in, I don't know, Fiore or whatever, and you have this interpretation in your head, and you just need the words to say this thing. And with just a little bit of massage, right? like subconscious massage, you can actually make them say that thing you want them to say. Yep. Yeah. And, and this goes back to what you and I talked about at one point. We are where we are in the martial arts here because we are all open to each other's interpretations. Now, yeah. there are actors who aren't, right? Sure. But this is what I loved about, about Lansing and WMAW is we would all go back to our own little practices and put things in place and try out our interpretations. Then we would meet back up again and I would see what you say and I would see what Bill says and we would go, oh, well, I figured this new thing out. Let's try this out. And it was this, this constant being open to everyone else being right and you not being right that was beautiful. It was just, it was a magical. And it's now been proven the case, I think, that we did it well when you look mm. at like uh, um, the Vienna Anonymous is really in line with all these things that we've been teaching. Yeah. So, and again, not everyone's read it. So the Vienna Anonymous is basically this this description of this this fencing student in the early 1600s yep, yep, wrote right. about wrote his sort of interpretation of what he was being taught with reference to Fabris and to Capoferro. Exactly. Re- reference the yeah. three manuals, but no one knows who the third one is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So he was in, I think, what is now the Czech Republic, uh, writing about, I think Tom was saying mid, mid-1600s, mid something around, yeah. around those lines. So I, mean, I could pull it off the shelf and we could geek out for right. it. Nah, I, think we should, I think we need to keep on track, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when the Vienna Anonymous surfaced, um, it did seem to confirm that we had read a lot of Fabris and Cabaferro correctly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that was, that again speaks to the whole reading words as they are, not as you want them to be, which I yeah. think we all did a pretty good job of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the critical thing to that is when somebody points out that you're reading it wrong, you actually, you can actually hear that. Yeah. Um, and I have noticed that there are some people who are better at that than others. There are, yeah, absolutely. There are those who I think they tie their ego too much into, you know, their own interpretation as opposed to wanting to search for the truth or, you know, search but, for But the also, truth. also, like quite a big problem is a lot of people who are working on these things, I'm a good example of one such person. I am not a trained linguist, a trained translator. I've not studied Italian at any particularly high level. You know, I think we had one semester on the Divine Comedy, and we did it in Italian, but that was about it. Um, and so it's really, really tempting when someone who actually knows what the words actually mean and can actually read it like an actual book, when you've read it and you've kind of made some sort of twisted interpretation of it, and they go, no, 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 it just means this. And this is perfectly straightforward. But there's maybe, there's a word in there which... It sounds like an English word, so you think it must mean the same thing as that English word, but actually it means something completely different. 
Yep. And so you end up in this sort of state of having created this entirely false reading of this particular bit of text. And then it's, it's really difficult to just go, oh, you must be right. Oh, yeah, okay, that doesn't work. Because that word does seem to mean what we think it means, but actually bloody doesn't. Right. Yep, 100%. <laughs> I, I, I see people who, I'm going to try and say this without naming names, I see people who, who blend too much of other knowledge in, and they mm-hmm. don't go at it, like we talked about, with an open mind about what, the, what may this actually mean. Um, what I did, slight tangent, what I did whenever I sent you that, my thoughts on the Stringere in the Bolognese oh, yeah. uh, manuals, what I did was, instead of looking at what the word is interpreted to mean by us, I went and applied how is it used in every case I can find in the, in, in the four Bolognese manuals. That's because you're a lawyer. Well, sure, sure. But that told me a whole lot, and it changed my interpretation of Stringeri because it was used the same way by three different masters. Um, yeah. It, anyway, yeah. But, but, it's, but that, that in itself isn't always, doesn't always work because very often the same word means it something completely different in different True. places and one thing that you know i've got a couple of published translations out and sometimes people email me but guy over here you translate this word as this english word but over there you translate it as something else and i'm like yes because in these two different contexts it means two different things right like right. like if we're talking about a water table or we're talking about a, a table with a glass of water on it they are not the same thing <laughs> you know even, it's like <laughs> e- even British to American English. This is what you right. and I talked about also. You know, the word constrain, I agree with you. It's the best word, best academic word for stringere. But when you look at it from the American point of view, that it brings up different connotations. And so you have to be careful with using it because constraint here has BDSM issues. You know, it has, okay. right? So it's See, we not, would say restraint. If you're going to tie someone up, you don't constrain them, you restrain them, we would say. Right. But constraint has come into our lexicon here in America. Constraints. You're, you're under constraints. You're, you're, you oh, yeah. know, you're being see, tied th- up, right? Okay. Okay. But just to, just to segue slightly, I think that's exactly what, what the stringray actually is meaning with sword. It's like the point of my sword position, um, if I have you stringed, I have constrained your possible courses of action. Oh, 100%. 100%. Right? It's just, it's so just- it doesn't necessarily imply a physical constraint, but it doesn't, it doesn't rule it out either. You I'm can string about, someone with physical constraint, but, right. but it's, I'm, just, it's, I'm just talking about what appears in your head. And when you're teaching a new person and you use that word, the thing that well, appears in their head may not clearly, be what you want it to be. Well, but that's always true with every student and every, every bit of technical terminology. So I'm not sure. But I'm, I'm illuminated that the first thing that pops into your head when I say constraint is BDSM. David, oh, I, 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 <laughs> don't worry, you're amongst friends. No mm-hmm. judgment here. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> We should get Ariel back on the show. Um, okay, so uh, so you went into law school. We sort of went off on a nice little sidetrack. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. You're, at, you're at law school and you're studying what the words actually mean in their various contexts. And uh, so you're back at law school and you're doing law review and what happened next? So I graduated in 2009, which mm-hmm. is the same year that the world melted down economically. Yeah. So I had a job lined up at the Patent and Trademark Office, the USPTO here in D.C. Um, They called me like the month before I graduated and said, we can no longer hire lawyers for the foreseeable future. Can you hold on for a bit? 
And of course, my answer is no. Um, no. Well, independently wealthy. Right. Of right. course. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of, I won't say I, I struggled, but I suddenly had to get myself going and figure out something else that I could do to make money. Mm -hmm. um, I met a, a diplomat who talked about the foreign service process of getting into the foreign service and went through the process and I, and, and I got in. So my, okay. my first try, that's a year long process. So I had to do a bunch of, uh, I was working for a nonprofit until then. But yeah, so then I kind of went directly into the Foreign Service, which then sends you all around the world. Okay, where did you go? My first posting was Ottawa. So okay, that's really far away. I know, I know. <laughs> um, I told a friend of mine in Boston, I just got posted to the one place that is closer to me than it is to you right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went, I went to Ottawa and I was busy in my first job, so I couldn't do a whole lot of SCA. I did a little bit, a little bit of fencing. I worked with uh, John and Zenas and uh, a couple of others yeah, there. Job. So I was kind of picking up a little bit of the rapier, but I w it wasn't a big focus. I was trying to work yeah. on my new job, right? Then I went into a year of Russian training, which is kind of like law school. It just it sucked my entire time. Mm -hmm. And then we went to Ukraine. And the only thing happening in Ukraine at that time was a lot of the... Uh, what I call cry uncle sword fighting. Um, okay. Stuff I really wasn't interested in, you know, putting on armor and beating each other until one of you can't stand anymore was kind of the... So th this is what was going on in the Ukraine? This, this was the only sword fighting I'd, I could find in, in Ukraine. So Ukraine. I wasn't okay, yeah. really interested in picking that back up. And yeah. again, when we were in Ukraine, suddenly a lot of things started happening and we were on crisis mode for like the 18 months, the last 18 months I was there. So there wasn't time to do anything outside of sure. just working. So after that, um, we came back to the U.S. We had, to we had Roxanne. We came back to the U.S. I actually didn't have any, any drive to get back into swordplay. I was doing some other so, things. So, I had some other so, one second. So you've, you've met Alex and Roxanne is your daughter. Just Yes. I'm sorry. So, so <laughs> That's okay. No, David, it is my job to look out it. for the listener and, and fill in the, the natural gaps. Don't worry. <laughs> so, so Alex, actually, Alex was a student of a student of mine. And okay. he brought her to me at an SCA event and said, teach her side sword. So this was, this was, oh my God, 2004 or five. And then years later, I found out that she was moving to, uh, to Madison, Wisconsin, which was only three or four hours from me in, in Minneapolis. So we started dating at that point in time. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, then when I went to foreign service, she left her PhD program and went to foreign service with me. And so we were a tandem couple in the foreign service being thrown around the okay. world. So what, what's her specialization in the foreign service? You're a lawyer. What does she do? Well, so actually I wasn't a lawyer. Well, so I was in the econ specialization, which is basically there's political economics management, which is the people that run the embassies, mm -hmm. um, consular, which was Alex. They're the ones who are fo who focus on, on visas and, and immigration and then uh, public diplomacy. They're the ones who are the voice for, you know, all the embassies. Yeah. So what, what most people think of when they think diplomat. Right, 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 yeah. right. And they're the ones who arrange all the press briefings and, and that kind of stuff. It's their job to do that. Um, I was in the econ and I was I specialized in science and technology diplomacy. So that was the thing okay. I wanted I wanted to do most of all. Alex did consular work. She was uh, the 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 immigration consular chief in Ukraine and came back here and kept doing fraud, immigration fraud work. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's kind of what we did, but you're also supposed to be able to move around in different jobs when you're in the foreign service. So there's, it, there's no way to really stay in any one thing, right. uh, because you just go to where you need to go. 
Okay. So then you came back to the U.S. and took up the swords again? Well, I came back to the U.S. and a friend of mine here, Candace, um, called me and said, hey, we would love you to come train at this uh, uh, practice, this SCA practice that's close. So I dug out all my old notes to remember what, what it was that I used to know and um, went and just started teaching basics, how to lunge, which people still have a hard time with, how to hold the sword, as, as you well know, is, is a hard thing. <laughs> no, no. Right. So yeah. that kind of got me back into it. Um, and then I and then I discovered that HEMA had popped up while I had been ro- roaming around the world, and I know the history of the of the HEMA WMA is kind of split and whatever. But see, okay, there isn't really one. There's uh, Western martial arts was what was what a certain group of historical martial artists were calling it in North America, and the term sort of was used a bit in Europe. And then historical fencing, historical swordplay, historical European martial arts. These are all basically the same thing over here. And I, now with the for a lot of people, HEMA is synonymous with the longsword tournament scene. Right. But that's really only true for people who are in the longsword tournament scene. Right. So that, that's, that is, you're right. That is, and that is how, how it's viewed in Europe. Here, as I watched it kind of pop up, and this is possibly my faulty memory, and Greg would probably kick me for saying things like this. The Western martial arts world really wasn't interested in tournaments that much. They were more interested in, in, in the, 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 the study and, and in the, the academics. And um, fencing as a research tool rather than fencing for competition. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, Tattershall and I, we hold that tournament is just one more tool to apply to, to test you under pressure, right? Sure. And to try to force yourself to continue to use the right techniques in, in a high tense situation. So we still agree that tournament is a useful tool. It's not the end result. It's not what you should be aiming for, but it's, it's a good tool. So then people, I, my view from here in America is people were getting frustrated by not having tournaments. And so they started putting tournaments and that's where HEMA started popping up. The word HEMA is attached to those tournaments. So okay. if you see from our point of view, they started using HEMA as their umbrella to do tournaments, where Western martial arts was the umbrella to do the, the academics, right? Well, I, I have a funny little aside on that. Okay. Um, I've had Jake Norwood on the show. And okay. I remember when Jake Norwood first came to the Western martial arts workshop in Racine in like 2008, right? And he was like from the HEMA side of things. He was right. like, he was famously, he helped start the long point major event, massive tournaments and blah, blah, blah. And he came out of the WMAW thing saying he had never fenced so much in a weekend in his whole life. Yep. Right? Yep. It wasn't tournament, like competition tournament fencing, but he just, everyone fenced him whenever, he, you know, he could he could get a pickup fight in two seconds with any time he wanted. And he spent most of the weekend fencing. Yep. Um, and at the same time, he was also highlighting to us the long point is not was not just tournaments. They had classes and stuff as well. It's just people didn't talk about those as much. But if you look at the actual schedule, there was as much class time as there was tournament time. So, you know, I think I think the the black and white division of it is 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 necessarily leaving out an awful lot of grey areas. There's so, a lot more overlap than than. I'm I'm, I'm painting with broad think. brushes. I absolutely sure. will say that. But I'll, I'll say this too about long point. The classes were ancillary. The classes were scheduled up against other tournaments. And so you had to choose whether you wanted to fight or go to a class. And so okay. it automatically filtered those who wanted to do study versus combat, you know, uh, tournament sure. combat. Okay. And 
in fact, jumping ahead, I'm, I'm, I, I don't mean this as bad as, it say, as I say it, but I went to the last long point that had rapier tournaments mm -hmm. here and watched how it ran, and that's what kind of cued me in, I can do something better than this. I can make it work better. <laughs> okay. With all um, due respect to the long point crowd, many of whom have, have been on this show, and yeah, they were doing something slightly different. Okay, so... Well, and they, they admitted, they've admitted that they bit off way more than they could chew that last year with Rapier right. and all the tournaments they had. So it was a lot. Sure. It was a whole lot. Okay, so um, this might be a good time to think about Lord Baltimore's challenge. Sure. Should we throw sure, that sure. in there? Um, so you come back, you rejoined the SCA and... Rejoined okay. the SCA and met Lisa Lazito. Uh, she was a student of, of Tom Leone, and so she was interested in historical swordplay more than the SCA. So that's, this, is, this is kind of why Candace dragged me yet back. She said, Lisa wants more of the historical stuff, and you're the one I know to do it the best. So come. come okay. Catch. So Lisa then kind of started poking me to come to HEMA events. And so I went, and in my very problem-solving brain, I was watching what was going on and thinking about how to twist it and do it a little bit better and how to whatever. And so that kind of built the idea of, I think I know how I can do something here better than this. The kingdom I live in doesn't really do tournaments. <laughs> Spoken like a good US diplomat. <laughs> I mean, they... They do them every once in a while, but it's not to the level that I was doing when I was in Texas. And it's not, they don't tend to want to do things like just a, a skill-based tournament. They tend to do fun things like, a, sure. here, win some coins and, and, and you know, okay. go chase and, the box. And just, again, there will be people listening who don't know what an SCA kingdom is. It's like a large sort of regional organization of the SCA. So my joke about you being a U.S. diplomat living in a kingdom in America, right. and that's kind yeah, of ironic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that is, was probably that is, quite yeah. a bad joke. It was a terrible joke. No, and it's funny. <laughs> I, I know of actual diplomats who are like, I know of a of a of an ambassador who's in the SCA uh, who's posted abroad. So it, that's it's kind of even funnier for someone like that. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, so this idea got in my head, and I kept rolling it around. And so I, I reached out to a few of my friends because this is not something. I could do on my own and that's a big hurdle for me because i hate asking for help it's 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 difficult for me to ask people to help so i i pulled together a group and who all said yeah this sounds great and then we just kind of rolled with it and so i funded it the first one uh out of pocket got all that you know we made a profit on the first one but it was just a matter of getting a bunch of people who have all run sca events so they've all been involved in what it takes to put together an event and you know insurance whatever all the whole thing and I came up with the rule set, and uh, I came up with the concept of we need to bring in experienced instructors as a draw, but then use those instructors for directors, because what makes a good director and a good judge is the experience, is being able to break down the fight in your head, run it backwards, and see what happened, right? Okay, yeah. So that's where I was coming from. So yeah, my first year, so I had a lot of maestros. I had a lot of people who had the classical fencing uh, masters and they were able to do exactly what I wanted to, to be great ring directors and we had some good judges. So it ran well. A lot of people said, this is the best thing I've ever fought in. Let's do it again. So, you know, now we're, we just finished last year, our third iteration, you know, pandemic being in the middle of all that. I was there. <laughs> yep, you were there. You remember. <laughs> I do. Um, so the, I mean, to my mind, 
the bottom of the challenge is half tournaments, half classes. Right. All you've mentioned so far is the tournaments. And it feels like you what you're really doing is setting up a tournament um, that was like an alternative to... I'm actually doing the opposite. If okay. I had my druthers, mm-hmm. um, I would want to do a weekend of just seminars. But I okay. do, like I said, I do believe tournaments have a purpose. They, they, they so, have a use. Um, and the tournaments are, are, one, kind of the draw for a lot of people. But two, they are what funds half of LBC. Okay, because people will pay to travel to a tournament more than they'll pay to travel to seminars. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the way I broke down the, uh, the, the pay structure in order to not be overwhelmed by everyone entering a tournament, you have to pay 25 bucks to get into a tournament. So you enter, 40 ah. you enter 40 bucks and then you pay 25 bucks per tournament. Because my thought was, if I, if I just say, you know, pay to enter, everyone's going to sign up for a tournament where they fight in, the, in it or not. And then that's right. a of paperwork and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by having the tournament as like a optional add-on that costs more money, you, you, it filtered out those who weren't that interested. Exactly. And if I charged instead, say, 80 bucks for a weekend seminar with, with you, with Puck, with, with Dave Koblenz, um, I might get fewer people and therefore couldn't have afforded to fly you yeah. guys in. I just had an idea. Okay. Okay. Um, so... The problem with tournaments as a learning environment is there is lots and lots and lots and lots of competitive free play, which is great, but there's no space to do the competitive free play, learn something, go train it, and then go back into the environment, right? So you get, it's really useful, but let's say you learn early on that your, I don't know, defense on your inside line isn't up to scratch, and that's what knocks you out halfway through the day. That, that's that's a useful thing to go away and train in your home thing, but but you're missing the usefulness. So here's a thought, right? You have a group of students, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, whatever. Maybe you split them into groups. They, they run a pool, right? Where everyone gets four or five bouts in a tournament type setting, right? Which is more than enough to learn something useful. Then their ring director does the sets up the training so that whatever issues they were finding they can work on and then so that's like for an hour and then you run the pool again so oh, it'd have to be quite small pools and it would have to be you may not complete the pool and then at the end of the day or at the end of the weekend you have a record of all of these tournament fights right and so you can you can have a winner you might even have like the last event is like a knockout tournament yeah so you have a winner if you want but rather than it being fence all day and then study the next day, it's fence for an hour, work on those corrections for an hour, fence for an hour, work on those corrections for an hour, back and forth. So Wouldn't that be better? We are on the same page. In fact, this is a variation of what you suggested when you left last time. And I've, I've been rolling it? it around. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I've, so I've been rolling this around my head because your suggestion was that you teach your how to evaluate yourself class and then break up into pools and then do exactly what you just said and then spend the rest of the day, you know, once they understand kind of a better idea of how to evaluate themselves, then send them off. And that's basically kind of a tournament training process, which is exactly what you just described. So this October, Mm -hmm. so neither Lisa nor I had the spoons to to do a full LBC this year. You know, it was, we, we just, we're both busy. We both have a lot of things going on. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make the LBC tournament thing every other year. Okay. 
But this October, I'm going to rent a kind of a park and I'm going to bring Kayatin and I'm going to bring uh, probably Justin back. And I've, I've, I've reached out to a few others. If I can afford it, I'll bring you in. <laughs> okay. That's, that's the big question with you. Um, because this is going to be a, a, a very light lift, inexpensive, but I want to do exactly what you said. So here's what my thought is for October. One day, everyone gets to teach whatever classes they want, but I'm going to give everyone like two and a half hours. So teach a 90 minute class and then spend an hour helping everyone walk through what you just taught them, right? Then the next day, do exactly what you just said, make it all a big tournament thing. So put everyone in pools and then have them evaluate and then put everyone in pools just, and have them evaluate. I just had another idea. Uh-oh. Right. Go okay. Ahead. So let's say you've got, I don't know, Kaya, Justin, and me, uh -huh. and you, four people, and there's like, I don't know, 80 attendees. So we've got 20 each. And they are randomly assigned to our various groups. Okay? Mm -hmm. so it's just, it's just, probably a terrible idea, but who knows? Okay. Our job is to train those people to beat everyone else. And so the final round of pools is like my top four versus your top four versus Kyle's <laughs> top four versus Justin's top four. Yeah. And it gets so a bit team, of... Team Guy, Team Justin, Team ex <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Because then also, also think about it. Let's say, let's say I had, I don't know, 12 students or maybe it's 20 or whatever, right? You probably want a fairly small number for this to work really well because then you get... Right. You don't spend so much time setting things up. Okay. There will be some kind of tournamenty process within their group that gets their, that decides which two people get sent into the finals. Yeah. Or three people or whatever. I, you know, tournament numbers better than I do. Right. right. But, and it has to be, it has to be a bit of fun. Right. It mustn't be taken too seriously. But right. then those two people, when they are representing their new club, they have a bunch of cheerleaders with them yeah. who are invested in their success. Yeah. And here's a thought. Here's a thought. Because when you're training with your each other, you are you are making each other better. So in the in the training portions of the of the session, right? Whoever you're training with, you're trying to make them better. So if they go off and win a tournament, then you have part of that. So the prize is distributed amongst the entire group. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Isn't that yep, a genius yep, yep. idea? I like that. I like but, that. Okay. I Big problem with it, uh -huh. right? Some people will have literally flown across America because they want to take Kaya's class and they get stuck in mine. Well, but that's why we have we have individual classes on one day and then we do this thing on the second day. So they have okay. a chance to take Kaya's classes. So if I, I haven't decided to make it two days yet, but it's I'm rolling it around my head because the place that I found is pretty cheap. I can get it for not much at all. Um, the, the question I have, so we, in order to make this work, with the amount of, of bandwidth we have, this would have to be a self-call tournament only. We couldn't oh, absolutely. have we couldn't have yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And and I would I would, what I would probably do in my if I have one of these groups, let's say I've got I don't know, ten ten students or twelve students or whatever, and we need to start eliminating, I will say, Okay, you guys split up, fence to five hits, winners go in this group, they fence yep. each other, losers go in that group, they fence each other. Yep. Yep. And yep. and so it's all it's all done so there's, there isn't too much of that. I mean, something's riding on it because you're trying to get through to the next. Right. And there will be occasions when a bit of friendly oversight is necessary, but they should be able to judge themselves. Yep. Right. Yep. So like, I like it. If, if you've got, if they're in groups of three, right, you can have one presiding, two fencing, one presiding, two fencing, one presiding, two fencing, right? And so 
they have a a supervisor to kind of call fair hits, or if there's any dispute, tell them to run it again or whatever. Right. So there's there's ways of there's ways of doing it which aren't entirely casual, um, and which also give them experience at sort of ring directing and presiding and judging. I love it. I love it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna roll this around and play with it. You tell me how your October looks later on, and, okay. and let's let's look at the cost. <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I'm talking myself into the job. Brilliant. Lovely. <laughs> I know you hate that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. All this, all these swords and stuff, incredibly boring. I've just checked my calendar, and you'll be happy to hear it's currently relatively open in October. Fantastic. All right. Let's mm. keep talking about that later on. Yeah, okay. Um, all right. Now, we've been talking quite a lot about the SCA, and... Anyone who's spent any time on social media where swords are mentioned will be aware that there's some major kerfuffle going on within the Society for Creative Anachronism. Now, before you get into it, um, I just want to be clear to people listening that you are a long-time member of the SCA and have its best interests at heart. And I, so many of the people I respect in this field come from the SCA that... We're not talking about, like, the people. We're talking about the structure. Right. Yeah? 100%. Right. So, so let me What's start there. On? Let me start there. Everyone I know, and I mean almost literally everyone, they go into the SCA because their friends are there, because the people are there. Yeah. And almost everyone I know has complaints about the culture and the, the, the structure of the SCA. Yeah. Um, so... There's a, there's a lot to unpack here, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with what happened. Um, there was a war, Gulf War, which happens uh, in, in, in South uh, Mississippi every By year. By war, you mean great big event where everyone gets together and fights? Great big event, everyone gets together and fights, and yeah. there are large melees of hundreds of people on each side. Yeah. Um, so, and m many of them, there are lots of different melees. Um, so we consider them friendly. They have their own kind of their own rule set because all these different regions, these kingdoms are coming together. And so they have to all agree on which rules are which, which ones are we going to follow? Um, as you might guess, the SCA has safety manuals where you have to show that you are safe, that you know what the armor requirements are, you know what the fighting requirements are, you know, before you can get authorized to fight. So right. we've had these for years. They, they change slightly, but you know, so basically like a driving license to go on the field. Effectively, effectively. Yeah. Um, and then we have, we have marshals, and marshals have to go through their own training, uh, kind of like an umpire or a, you know, a referee, right? They have to know what to watch for, and they are empowered to toss people off the field if they're, if they're being unsafe or if, they're, or if they can't find that they're authorized, okay? Mm -hmm. Important points here. So there was a, a person who has high rank, a duke in the SCA, who... Word on the street a week before the Gulf Wars ha happened was that he was going to come fight Rapier and that no one could figure out whether or not he was actually authorized to do so. Um, he showed up. He walked up with an authorization card that wasn't properly signed. Uh, the Rapier Marshal in charge of the entire event, eventually it got to him and he bounced him and he said, you can't, you can't fight. That guy went and threw a huge fit, right. got his own rattan marshal not rapier but the rattan fighting mm -hmm. to sign off and to give him a sticker and then he came back and he tried to get in again once more got bounced uh, after a lot of back and forth um for not following the rules 
Uh, and then he complained up the chain to the top of the SCA. He did not complain up the chain to the top of the war. So the war has its own structure and its own yeah. martialate structure. He went around all that and complained up to the president of the, of the SCA because they're all dukes and because they're, they all know each other. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the feeling was that he had broken the rules. Um, okay, I'm sorry. The feeling from the rapier people were that he had broken the rules. The feeling from a lot of the heavy fighters is that the rapier person was was acting outside of their authority to t by telling a duke, no, you can't come on the field. Right. So in the end, the SCA sanctioned the rapier person, didn't give any sanction at all to the dukes who were trying to break the rules, um, and this caused a big kerfluffle. Well, so, so, I mean, really, what you need in a safety marshal is someone who can tell a duke to go boil his own head because he's not qualified and so can't. One step on the field. hundred percent. One hundred percent. That's what you're looking for in a safety marshal. You want someone who can stand up whenever they're saying something isn't right here. You need to set out today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, even, even if he'd been like, I don't know, perhaps he'd misread the paperwork and so was technically wrong. Even so, you need him to be able to say, no, the, this, your paperwork's not correct. Therefore, legally, I can't let you on the field. Terribly sorry. The corporate documents say that the authorization paperwork needs to be properly signed and you need to be able to present it when asked. Right. It was not properly signed. And from what I've been able to tell, none of the rapier marshals in that region ever heard who authorized this guy. Right. And people keep claiming, oh, but he was definitely authorized. And no, there, there's no definite because no one can tell anyone which rapier marshals were the ones who watched him right. and taught him. And if he was authorized, he would have a piece of paper saying that. If you don't have the paper, you're not authorized. And also, there's a rule in the corporate uh, government documents that say once you are authorized, it has to go in the database. So you, right. they are required to put it in the database, which no one did. Right. Um, so there's a, there was a number of reasons that the person in charge of rapier said, you did not meet this rule and this rule, basically. Mm -hmm. So for safety reasons... And I'm sure there was more heated discussion than this, but for safety reasons, you can't come onto my field. What the SCA has basically said, what the, the, the board of directors has said, is that a Duke's right to go on the field and fight is more important than all the safety rules that we have in place. <laughs> well, it is, it is a monarchy. It is, it, it is. And this is, this is part <laughs> I, of the problem. The, this right. is why I'm saying the culture is a problem, is the culture is that we... We unconsciously accept that the, these rulers, these dukes, actually have power when it's actually just a game side thing. Yeah. But we people conflate the 501c3 organization, tax-free organization, with the inside game, you know, structure. Right. Yes. And, th okay. and that's what's happening. The, the game structure people are also the ones who tend to step up to the board. And so it gets very blended together. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so you got involved. Why? So my wife noticed in the corporate documents that it says very clearly, any communications with the board of directors that aren't marked conf confidential are public. Okay. So she wrote the board and said, Hey, I note this rule that is in the governing documents. I would like you to send out and present to us all of these documents that are exchanges of information between the board and these people that right. aren't marked confidential and that aren't otherwise protected by, you know, privacy laws. Right. 
Correct. So and it's basically doing a, um, what's it called, a Freedom of Information Act request. Effectively, yeah. In fact, we, yeah. We, we use that term and people were like, oh, but this is not, a, this is not the government. I'm like, no, no, we're, we're, we're analogizing, we're analogizing is what we're doing, yeah. right? So yeah, she did exactly that and they told her no. So she, <laughs> okay. she came back and she's like, um, no, I don't think you understand. This is what the rules say. Um, I'm requesting this. And they started getting ruder and ruder in their nose. Okay. And so they were dismissing the smartest person I think I've ever known, right? Out of right. hand. Yeah, I, I've met Alex. He's, yeah. So, I wouldn't want to argue with her. Yeah. So I decided that I guess this organization who is based on uh, a hierarchy needed to see a JD writing in. Yeah. So I wrote in support of her request, laying out in very large detail with 83 footnotes on why they were incorrect about what they were saying to her and why that they were now legally liable and opening themselves up to lawsuits by not doing what their corporate documents say they're supposed to do. Right. Um, that got a very interesting response. And I can't remember what made me do this, but I followed it up now by taking a look at some of the sanctions that they have passed down and how the SCA is not following its own rules. And this is, it's important to say, I wasn't looking at the facts because I don't have all the facts. I was looking at the rules put in place and how the board followed the rules and how they broke all these rules. Right, because the board's, the, the rules of the thing, because it's a legally incorporated nonprofit organization, it's, it's corporate governance, if you like. Those rules are absolutely explicit. They're written down. Anyone can read them. And you are obliged by law to follow them or you are breaking the law. You are obliged by law to follow them and you cannot go outside them. You cannot just make up your own rules and, and say we're following them. Um, okay. There's a legal concept that I've, I wrote about, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slaughter this because I'm not a Latin speaker, but it's ultra vires. Yeah. And that means you're going beyond your power. And organizations have been shut down because they were shown to be willy-nilly making up rules without actually putting them in their, in their corporate documents. You have to bring them up, vote on them, publish them. You know, there's this whole so, process. So if you want to change the published rules, yep. you have to go through a proper procedure, publish it, make it public, and now you can then follow those new rules. Exactly. You okay. cannot and they just didn't simply do say, that. we no. Okay. And you cannot just simply say, well, we could pass this rule, so therefore we're going to do it. You know, that's, that's not right. the way this works, right? Yeah, and companies do this all the time. I mean, how often does a week go by where you don't get an email from some company saying, we are changing our terms of service, please go and have a look and accept it? Exactly right. Because right. they're exactly. obliged to inform you of any change to the terms of service. Okay. So what I did is I basically, I showed the emperor has no clothes. That, mm -hmm. that they are, and, and again, the members of the board, all the ones I've known are great people. Sure. My argument is they are in over their heads. None of them have, le well, very few of them have legal training. Very few of them have... Uh, a background in, a, in, in the ability to read corporate documents and apply them, let alone read the laws of California and the laws of the United States and see how those all mesh, right? <laughs> so yeah. we don't have a professional board. We don't have professional officers. And I was trying to point out, this is a problem, people. So okay. that's kind of what I came down to. Um, the SCA has lost multiple lawsuits or settled multiple lawsuits. And a lot of the ones that I've read have this exact same argument in it, that you guys aren't following your own rules. You have rules in okay. place and you're not following them. Okay, and as a result, Dukes are getting preferential treatment at the expense of safety. 
I mean, yes. So what, what it seems to me is that, and I'm, I'm going to be as generous as I can here, it seems to me that everyone simply assumes that certain people have power. So when they read the documents, they read into it, well, clearly these guys have this power. So, oh, look, here's this one clause that backs me up. But they don't read these six other clauses that limit that power. You see what I'm right. saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what's going on is everyone is, is, is trying to read these governing documents with an already assumption in their head of what they should say. And they stop when they find the thing that backs up that assumption and then they wave it around. Right. Um, now, there has been some, shall we say, what's the, what's the kindest way to put it? Politically stupid comments. <laughs> um, can I say, can I just let me float a catchphrase at you and see yep. if you catch it. All right. Half of one percent. Yeah. So, <laughs> what's that? What's that all about? So, someone who is the spokesperson for the board of directors, who is apparently no longer the spokesperson for the board of directors, um, made an unwise, and this is not the first time she's done it, uh, posting on her private, well, on her very public, but her own Facebook page. And it seems very much that it was dismissing the concerns of all the people who were writing letters in to the board of directors. Mm -hmm. um, that has now lit up a lot of other people to start writing more letters in. So now there's also a, a hashtag I'm seeing that says, we are number 126. Um, okay. In other words, we're, we're sending in after the 125 that you've quoted. So basically 125 people sent in letters of complaint is a 25,000 strong organization and 125 out of 25,000 is a half of 1%. Yes. And it's still 125 people. Well, let, let me, let me, let me make, put this in context. That's 125 people who wrote over the course of about five days. Right. Okay. So, and if, if, if you know anything about marketing, you should know that for every one person who wrote, there's between 20, 10 and 30 who didn't write. Yeah. So yes, now, now you're looking up at around, you know, 10% who are pretty upset at the SCA if you take that marketing, that very well-researched marketing, you know, to heart. Um, and I suspect that they have far more than 125 that have written in at this point in time. Yeah. Okay. Um, where do you see this going? Um, Alex has put out a petition that is asking the BOD to reorganize. They need more people on the BOD. The they, Board they, of they Directors. Are, the Board of Directors. Yep. Yeah. Sorry. They are sorry. overwhelmed. They only have between five and seven people at any one time, I, and they, they need mm -hmm. more people because they're always overwhelmed. We need professionals at the top. The president's position needs to be professional. The vice president of operations, the one who basically interprets the rules, needs to be professional and needs to have training in rules interpretation. There needs to be training for every one of the board, the, the board of directors who comes in so that they understand how documents work and how to interpret them and, you know, what their own personal liability is if they get it wrong. They should all understand right. that very clearly. Um, and this is what effectively Alex is saying is we need to bring in an outside uh, a corporate, um, not investigator, but someone who can basically look at the, the state of the business and say, here are my recommendations. Basically a management consultant. Management consultant, a, a good one for nonprofits who, who understands yeah. nonprofits. And one of the issues that I've heard is that they tried to do this years ago. And in one case, they decided not to listen to the person. And in the other case, the person basically, in theory, 
was enacting a lot of shady financial things. So okay. they don't have a lot of good experience with bringing in people from the outside. Okay. So this is, this is where the petition that we have in place <clears throat> is trying to get at. And it's not pointing fingers. It's saying you guys are overwhelmed and you need help effectively. Okay. So if, if all goes well, this will be a stimulus to a useful change in how the SCA is run. One would hope. One would hope. There's a few okay. other things that I think should happen, and, and a lot of other people too. They need to really divide the game side versus the corporate side very clearly. Um, yeah. That, that needs to be a very clear divide, and the rules in place need to be very clear. Um, I also think that we need to rework the marshalette structure in, in, in a very significant way, um, and that will get a lot of, pu a lot of pushback from the, the armored community. So, How do you mean? I, um. What, what, what changes would you recommend? Right now, the armored marshal, the rattan fighting marshal, is the one in charge of everything. So the society earl marshal is basically the rattan marshal. Uh. Um, and that's how it happens in every kingdom. The kingdom earl marshal is the rattan marshal, and then everyone else is a deputy underneath that. Ah, so basically what you've got is chairman of the joint chiefs is always from the navy. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, okay. and therefore, the Navy gets a lot of perks. Yeah. And so my changes, would, well, mine and many others have had the same thought, would be that the, the senior marshal needs to be an administrative position who collects yeah. reports and who basically uh, reports to the board. And then each of the deputies needs to have the full power of their discipline. So an equestrian right. deputy, an archery deputy, a, a rapier deputy, that kind of thing. So actually, the, the person who is top of the tree when it comes to the actual boots on the ground, practical marshalling stuff is the deputy and the Earl Marshal is the one who kind of basically interfaces between all the different disciplines and the board. Right. Yep. Right. And, and the one, the one who should be able to pull together reports quickly, you know, what, what, yeah. what are our, what are our injury rates in all the different disciplines? You know, yeah. th that person should be able to say, I can get, and, quickly get you that. And here's the thing, right? If it's got a title like Earl Marshal, people will want it who shouldn't have it. Yep. Because honestly, when you describe that job, I think of that that is the last job on earth I would want. I would rather like clean toilets in a nasty pub than do that kind of admin stuff because it would just melt my brain to pieces and I'd be rubbish at it. And, and a lot of people would get cross with me for good reason. And, and let me take that and run with it. My argument that I made in one of the papers that I wrote was if you're an Earl Marshal of a kingdom, you shouldn't want to have the ability to override the equestrian experts in your kingdom and the rapier experts in your right. kingdom. You should be saying, no, 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 I have to listen to them because they know what they're doing and I've never trained in horse before. I've never trained in rapier before. So my argument is from a legal point of view, you should separate yourself from those other disciplines that you've never trained in. Right, yeah. But what okay. do I know? Well, quite a lot apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. <laughs> And it, and it could help. And, you know, I have a, an interview coming up, actually the, in the schedule, it's the next one after this, um, with someone who was injured in the SCA during a safety test thing because the person running the test was basically overruled the protest of the person being tested um, and basically made this person keep hitting harder and harder and harder until eventually an injury occurred. And it was wow. basically, yeah, it was basically manipulating their position to get a pesky woman out of the way yep. by injuring yep. her. 
Right. And it's, I, I, it's I, awful. You probably I know what I'm talking about. Uh, okay. Actually, and, and that's, there's a problem. I don't because I've heard this story many, many times from different ah, people. Ah, okay. This, this, right. this, this is a culture. This is a culture in, in, in the SCA. And you will well, hear mostly on, on the armored field, but also in rapier, teaching through pain. You will hear that over and over again. Yeah. And, and a sort of like the thing that I've, has never attracted me about the SCA is the hierarchy. Yeah. Right. I, I just can't get my head around the idea of calling someone Lord or Duke or whatever when, you know, they're just built from accounts, you know? So, yes, I have used the SCA for my own purposes the entire time I've been in it. Okay. And, and that is a test bed for rapier. Mm-hmm. Uh, to use the, the, the structure to practice in, in uh, SCA practices or to go to tournaments or whatever. So I've never really been taken with the whole, with the persona play, with the Lord Lady, with the, you know, Duke, yeah. Duchess, whatever. And, and that has given me kind of the ability to be somewhat distant from it as opposed to really engaged and, and my, my title being part of my personality, you know. What is your title? Um. Master of Defense? Master, master yeah. twice, because the Laurel's a master and the Defense is a master. Um, so some people say maestro, some people say magistra. My wife uses magistra because it's, it's a uh, 12th century um, term for uh, teachers, for professors. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to go by my titles, usually. I, I, I just write my name and then order the Laurel or, or order Defense. I don't put Master Aaron Harper. Okay. Um, but you're... You chose the name Aaron Harper. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right in thinking the Harper is something to do with actual harps? Interestingly enough, um, kind of. So when I was looking at names, my little sister's name is Aaron, E-R-I-N. And I saw the Gaelic A-E-R-O-N and thought, that sounds interesting. I like that. I like the role that R. I like the mm-hmm. way it sounds. And then, I, yes, I had just started building harps. And so I was like, and I know that Harper is a period name. It's, it's right. easily documentable. So I just threw that together and that became yeah. the name, right? Yes. And uh, that's someone who plays or makes harps? Um, I think it's someone who plays. I don't think it's okay. someone who makes. But, but, okay. but you do. vague there. But I do. Yes, and I've, I've, okay, I'm being a little bit disingenuous because, of course, I've been to your house and I've, right. like, dug around in your woodpile and, you know, I've actually played one of your harps. That's, that's overstating the case. I have sat on the sofa and strummed the strings of one of your harps. We wouldn't call it actually playing. Right, right, right. Um, so, uh, as you know, I'm a woodworker. I think everyone listening has probably been bored to death about me talking about chisels and stuff. So, you did you start your woodworking career with harps or i kind of did actually okay. so it's a hard place to start it, it is um but I'll, I'll say this and this is why i say kind of my grandfather was a carpenter and a woodworker he was not a fine woodworker he was a nail it together and glue it down and and make it work he built houses for a while and then he started yeah. building kind of simple furniture um so i grew up watching him in the wood shop just out there kind of seeing what he did and how he did it um so when I, when I was dating my first wife, she had a little harp made by someone in Louisiana that had fallen apart, or actually it had, it had pulled itself apart when it sat in the sun. The glue melted oh, and it just... Oh, ouch. Yeah. Right. So she had it repaired and it, they, they repaired it just fine. But I looked at the design and I was like, I know how to fix that. So mm. back to the whole long point thing, you know, I looked yeah. at it and thought I can do better than that. Um, so I sat down and designed a... Uh, uh, engineered a harp 
and thought, I want to make this. And so we took a, a, a week and went to my grandpa's farm and sat in his wood shop. And I banged out like four or five pieces, four or five harp pieces. So mm -hmm. I had enough for like four harps or so. And so I, I put one together and it worked just fine. Uh, eventually, I had put enough together that I started selling them. Um, and at this point in time, I think I've built about 30. That's a lot uh, of hubs. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's over the course of a long time, you know, it's over the course of what, 20 years plus. Um, but I've changed my design a few times and then I started, I, I got a hold of, and the one that you played, I got a hold of uh, blueprints from Germany of a supposedly 16th century uh, Gothic harp and built that, designed and built that. Okay. So that's how, that's how I got into it, basically. It's just been over the years, you know, I try something, I look at it. Oh, look, that joint didn't work well. How can I fix that joint? Go back again. So I've gone through like three or four iterations of my design. I've, you must know Andrew Lawrence King. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's been on this show before. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, I've been in his kitchen where his wife at the time, who also builds hearts, had just finished quite a big one. It must have been about four foot tall. Yep. And he would play it a little bit and then she would sort of open up this box in the middle of it and reach in and scrape a little bit with a chisel and brush out the shavings and then close it back up again and he'd play it again and it would sound different, even to my ears. And I have yep. cloth ears. It would sound different, right? Yep. How do you learn that? You learn it by doing it. Um, okay. I, I have only tuned my soundboards a little bit. I haven't tuned them as, at, to that degree. She, she was very good. Um, yeah. I mean, she was making harps for a professional world-class historical harpist. <laughs> right. And she also, she was making a Baroque harp, if I remember correctly. That was her specialty. The, the larger Baroque, the bigger yeah. bodies. Yeah. Um, with the smaller Renaissance harp, there's a question about whether they actually tuned that way, whether they actually, you know, really fine-tuned to that point. But uh, my favorite lute maker... Uh, Robert Lundberg, who, bless his soul, has, has died, he talks about tuning lute bodies, lute, lute bellies. Mm -hmm. And what he would do is, is before he put it all together, he would hold it up and he would hold it by the, the base support and just tap it all around. And then he would shave off bits of the support until he had the tone where he wanted. He localized the bass to the bottom of the belly and he localized the tenor to the top of the belly, that kind of thing. So there's lots of different ways to tune the belly of your harp or of your lute. And it really just simply takes doing it and figuring it out. I mean, each, you know this, each piece of wood is different from each other piece of wood. Right. So it takes the experience of knowing where to remove the thick thickness without compromising the strength versus, you know, the, the yeah. thickness, right? Yeah. And, and like two bits of oak might be more different than a bit of oak and a bit of ash. Yep. Just depending on how the tree grew and yeah. Okay. Right. The, the, the seasons, the, the, the water table, the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. So did you make anything else other than hops? I've made a few liars um, and I've made a whole bunch of furniture of different types. Um, I've made sword stands. I've made... Uh, <laughs> I think everyone's made sword stands, whether they're right? woodworkers or not. I know. Um, I, th I can't think of much of much else. I mean, I, I just anything that comes to mind that I can make make out of wood, I make out of wood. This the this desks I'm sitting in right now, I made. The one beside me, my grandpa made. Oh, um, that's pretty so, nice. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I I just whenever I think of, a, of something looks interesting or I want to I want to test myself, I do it. But unlike you, 
I don't continually do it. So every time I come back to my project, I have to relearn how my chisel works and kind of relearn how to tune my. I really so so you jump in and out. I do, I do. Um, so I'm guessing you didn't do a lot of woodwork in the Ukraine. No, zero, zero. Uh, we that, we I had to pack my my entire shop up and leave it. Um, I had to pack up a lot of my hobbies and leave them behind because we had an apartment in downtown Kiev, and that right. that was that was a no no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have a friend who, who used to do woodworking quite seriously and then moved to an apartment in the middle of Edinburgh. And so he switched to stained glass. So, yeah, I, I can see that. I did. So there's, the, there's an article I read about a guy who's one of the top violin repairists. And he lives in an apartment, a small apartment in New York City. And he has this closet where he just opens it up. His entire shop kind of just wow. comes down and he has all of his hand tools in front of him. I'm, I'm in awe of that guy. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I do like these sort of hideaway workshop setups. I mean, I, I really like having an enormous workshop with loads of space and natural <laughs> know, light. Right? And, uh, yeah, that would be ideal. But um, yeah, like, like tool organization and having it so that you, I've seen like in woodworking magazines, people have these amazing, like it looks like an ordinary cupboard, but open it up and it's just like, chisels and planes and everything and then there's this table underneath it actually happens to be super stable and bolted to the wall and there's a vice that kind of just just pops onto it and yeah yep 100 kind of stealth woodworking yeah uh, and i'm guessing that a violin make a violin repairer like that working at that level he's working on instruments that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars oh even he's millions probably yeah he's probably working on one at a time he's never in any rush right and you don't really need a lot of space for that sort of no. thing. No, and I mean, you, you might have seen, you know, the planes that you use on violins are this yeah, small, tiny. right? Yeah. They're tiny little things. <laughs> about the size of your thumb. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, ag agreed. I mean, the fact that I want to work on big furniture and harps kind of makes the fact that I need a bigger shop than that guy does. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I have an optimal kind of working size. Like, I like to work on things that are sort of between about four feet long down to about six inches on a side. Yeah. Right? I'm, anything smaller than that, I get a bit lost. Although I have taken up watch repair a little bit, and that is really ridiculously tiny and impossible and difficult, and it melts my brain. Yeah, I, I saw you it. doing that. That's, that's, that's amazing. I've known one other person who did that, and that's one of those that's like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't be wowed Yeah, I mean, I haven't yet actually disassembled a mechanical watch movement and reassembled it because you have to clean it and you need special solvents and you, and you need like special lubricants and stuff which are applied in the most microscopic quantities wow um yeah it, i i haven't got there yet at the moment i'm sort of you know changing batteries and crystals and um straps and i've replaced the movement out of this watch here in fact cool this this rotary watch which i got in a bunch of like spares and repairs on eBay and it was just buggered. Changing the battery didn't fix it and it was one of those movements that can't really be worked on. So I just got a new movement and put it all back in and and that's why it's got all these fancy chronograph things. Actually it's missing one of the hands because I lost it. <laughs> so it wasn't a fully successful job. Right. Well <laughs> but, but you know it's, I, it's a learning and this, this is yeah. why you and I are on the same page. I mean so I wanted to get I wanted to get a new bike. So what did I do? I bought all the parts and built it while I was going through Russian training, you know? Right. Never done that before. 
I spent way more on the tools than I probably would have just buying a new bike. But then, but then you understand how it works and you can fix exactly. it if it breaks. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm very much, uh, very much in favor of you know you learn it by doing it. Yeah, um, and you know, it's it's funny because you you don't learn swordsmanship from reading a book, but if you can't read the book, you won't learn swordsmanship. Yep. At least if you're doing original research. Yep. It's, it's weird. But, but this is this has been the argument for academics for a long time is. Mm. You cannot learn any discipline by just talking about it. You have to be doing it. So, except maybe philosophy. True, maybe. but you you still have to see it in action. You still have to be able to to point to things and say this okay. is how things work, right? Yeah. Um, I, I've sat in meetings in my day job with professors who tell me what the State Department should be doing without ever having had to go through the process of making something happen in the State Department. Right. And it's like it's really easy to say that we should be doing this thing. But you don't understand all of the, the, the interagency hoops and whistles we have to go through to get anything done, right? Yeah. But they don't care because they don't have to. That's, that's not the thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, theory has its place, but it should be theory and practice. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Now, um, you've obviously done a lot of stuff, um, but I have a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. And the first is, what's the best idea you haven't acted on yet? So I thought of three. Okay. The sword-focused one is, and I'm I'm started doing this. Translate Jisliri. Okay. Translate so Jisliri. No, okay. No one's done Jisliri. Um, I know that that Gary Shellac was working on it at one point. I know that Justin, uh, one of Justin's friends, is working on it. Um, but I want to see what Jisliri says because he has a fascinating background uh, history. Um, he was cousin to a pope and was a general on the battlefield and then he wrote his manual so he okay. had all that experience and then he wrote this manual so that's that's the sword one okay so hang on. what's stopping you from doing it oh i'm doing it little by little i just okay. it, it would take putting aside so many other things to focus on it and so that's why it's you know uh, okay I've acted kind of on it, but I haven't gotten more than like a couple paragraphs into it, if that makes sense. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, when you're translating a whole book, a couple of paragraphs is is like the warm-up to the beginning. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, the thing that I've, I've thought about my entire, well, a, a lot of my life that I haven't done is I want to buy a timber frame barn and construct it out on, on some land and build a house around that barn. Okay. Not what I was so, expecting. I love timber frames. I love timber frame houses. And I love the idea of this three or 400 year old timber frame structure that I can then feel free to design my living space inside, you know? There's a people doing that at the moment and documenting it. Yep. And they also, they, they run a woodworking magazine. Um, damn it. I'm on their mailing list and I've bought some of their books. Yep. Okay. I have t- I have two of them. I know who you're talking about. Um, Tenon. Yeah, Mortis and Tenon magazine. Mortis and Tenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And they they have this project of they're restoring this old house and and it's all wood and it's all very jack planes and mallets and. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay, no, so, uh, so why haven't you done it? Because I haven't settled down in any one place to have the land that I want. You know. Um, okay. After. We were in Houston, and then I went to law school, and then we were in foreign service, so we moved around the world a couple times, and then we came back here to D.C., we bought this house, and we've been working. So now... So, I'm, but you're not in foreign service anymore, right? 
not in the Foreign Service anymore. I, I resigned from the Foreign Service, resigned my commission, and took up a civil service position, uh, okay. but still in the State Department. So now, in the back of my head, I'm kind of keeping an eye out for different pieces of land around, you know, I don't okay. know, Pennsylvania, New York, something like that. So if anyone listening has a 300-year-old barn on a piece of land that they might want to get rid of, they should talk to you. Sure, sure. There you never companies, know. You never there are know. companies who do it. They'll buy these barns, they'll take them down, and then they will sell them as kits. So, so oh, there's wow. those things too. Yeah. That's not actually a bad way to do it. Yeah. I mean, because anyone who wants to take down their timber frame barn can just contact this company and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you this money for it and then we'll clean the timbers, replace the ones that are, are, are done for, you know, and then they sell, they, they, you can go online and find, they will show you what the barn has looked like. Some of them even use AutoCAD to show you yeah. kind of the, the design inside the barn. So yeah, no, it's, it's a whole thing here. Wow. Okay. So you just need to make a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, there's not really that much opportunity to embezzle shit in the State Department, is there? Well, and of course, <laughs> I don't want to. I was, no, I, I, was, I was asked to break the law once and told them no, and that was an interesting little adventure. <clears throat> okay, what happened? Or can you talk that, about it? With that, um, I worked for an office that, I'm trying to figure out how to say this well, we were asked to share something with another U.S. agency. And because the State Department is outward-looking, there are rules against what we can do with inward-looking agencies. Does that make sense? Right. So, like, difference between CIA and FBI? Yeah, pretty much. Um, DHS and State Department, right? State yeah. Department is international. DHS is, is the homeland. Yeah. So, there are, there are some strong rules about what we are allowed to, because basically we can't spend our money on something that is inside the U.S. That's a very big yeah. State Department rule. So yeah. if, if, we, if we did something, if we did a report that looked inside the U.S., that crosses a whole lot of legal lines. Okay. So I was asked, I was acting office director, and I was asked to sign off on doing exactly that. And the paper that I was looking at had our lawyer's paragraph telling us, this is something we cannot do. So I just replied to that email with that cut and paste saying, this is something we cannot do. And my bosses were not happy with me. You'd think they would be like, oh, well, I'm really glad David spotted that because otherwise we might end up in jail. You'd think, you'd think. But this was, this was an interesting time and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay, so obviously they knew that it was against the law and they were hoping you wouldn't notice. Yeah, yeah. Which well, is another way of saying they're hoping you were crap at your job. That or browbeating, you know, that that do what we say. Just do what we say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. All right. Um, so that's two. You've had the translate Gisliere, um, build a barn. What's the third one? The third one is I want to ride a bike across northern Italy, stopping every evening to cook with the local Italians. That's a brilliant idea. Can I come? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. Because, I mean... <laughs> It would be like it would be like thirty minutes, thirty miles a day. It wouldn't be much because you'd have to get there in the late afternoon and then just kind of go in and cook dinner. There's hills, sure, there's hills. Okay. Uh, but then you know the next day you write off all those calories that you ate the night before. Oh, 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 dude! I'm going to be behind you in a hard Lamborghini. <laughs> I'm not cycling. <laughs> They're hills. Yeah, I mean, I once tried to take a walk um, in the Italian sort of countryside outside Lucca, and yeah. It is very difficult to 
to safely be not a car on those roads and actually difficult to be safely a car on those roads too so yeah, yeah. I'll, what I'll do is I'll say I'm not a Lamborghini because that would be a bit, a bit not, 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 not a good choice for this purpose because um, it would be too loud and noisy and it wants to go fast but you need a car behind you so that the other cars behind you aren't going to kill you I have heard hints that there are people who actually have tours like this now that basically okay. there is a car that goes from town to town and you take you, you give your, your your stuff with it if you want to, your suitcase yeah. or your backpack or whatever, and then you're just free to ride. So I, I've I've been told that these things exist. I just haven't looked them up. And we need to set setting up the cooking side of things shouldn't be that difficult because through the historical martial arts connections, we sort of have access to Italians in just about every town in Italy. Yeah. And I mean you know. simply even that or even just, you know, call some nice restaurants and say, hey, I'd like to learn what you know. I'll be there this evening. And I bet a lot of them be like, sure, you know, come on by. In a restaurant, I doubt it. In the smaller restaurants. I'm talking the smaller towns, you know, where maybe, they're, they're maybe. like family I'm just saying, run. Have you ever been in a, in a professional kitchen? In a professional? Okay, I've been in one. I've never worked in one, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like there isn't a lot of room for people who don't know what they're doing. Nah, you're right. You're right there. That's true. <laughs> Probably better off getting like historical fences in these places just to take you home and you can help their mum cook. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and you will, you will definitely get the calories in that way. Yep. And that, that's true because that, that ties in the whole fencing thing and that would be even more fun. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, I think you should definitely do that. Um, I do too. My, my brother and I took our kid, our sons to, uh, to Northern Italy and we roamed around Trento and Bolzano and, we saw all the biking trails that were already built into the sides mm. of the hills and stuff. And this is what kind of got my head thinking either here up in the way North Italy or down in, uh, uh around Florence to, Bo to Bologna, for instance, you know, mm. something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Good ideas. I think you should act on them. Especially the to. last one. <laughs> I hope to. Yep. Um, okay. Last question. Somebody gives you a proverbial million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? So what I came up with is this. I would put that million dollars in an interest-bearing account or endowment, and then I would mm. use the proceeds to fund a series of seminars and tournaments. Okay. Um, I might also use it to set up like a training system or school for training judges so that we could have an actual training okay. process for judges. And then if it grew big enough, I might take a chunk for research grants and give people a few thousand dollars to go study at the New York library or, you know, some other place to, to do some yeah, research. I mean, a million dollars well invested should be bringing in 50 to 100 grand a year. That's, that's exactly what I have here. I, I was thinking 50 yeah. to 80,000. LBC comes in at under $10,000 right. and it makes a small profit each year. So let's say I was given a $3,000 grant for Lord Baltimore's challenge. I could then buy a really nice venue, keep charging the same amount for everyone, and I wouldn't have to raise my prices. So that right. kind of a thing, you could do 10 of those a year, you know, just help Easy, other yeah. people out. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a nice broad focus. So you like grants for people running events, grants for research, grants for various other things. Um, the trick, of course, always is you'd need to have some kind of... Um, filtering process right right you need um, to have, a, have a, a committee or something and, and it can't be david's mates get the cash <laughs> damn it <laughs> well it can be right no you're right because I, if, if i set up an endowment it would have to be a legal 
uh, organization. So it'd have to it'd yeah. have its own rules, right? Yeah, and you'd actually have to follow them. Yep. Imagine that. Oh, crazy, and if you're going to change them, you'd have to like go through a due process and let everybody know. And yeah, that never happens. Yeah, yeah. and I never go ultra vires. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, what specifically would you want the fund to achieve? Like, what is the thing? What is the gap that you want to fill, or the 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 area of weakness that you want to strengthen? To to enable people who are in smaller distant areas who want to do a small thing, maybe just a saber only focused tournament or um, who don't have the the chops to do, you know, 15 tournaments over a weekend or whatever. I want to help out the people who have good ideas, but don't know where to start with them and don't have the money to 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 do it themselves. I was lucky enough that I had an open credit card when I started Lord Baltimore's Challenge and I made all that money back, so I still had an open credit card. So, right. But not everyone has that. So I, want, I would want to... This is what I did in the SCA. So I created some rules uh, under the Arts and Sciences umbrella for studying historical swordplay. And I, I wrote the rules broadly so that you could study any type of historical martial arts you wanted to inside mm -hmm. the SCA. Now, not tournaments, but this is study. This is like demonstrations mm. and things. Yeah. But I wrote it as broadly as I could so it could help everyone, people who wanted to do armazeres, people who wanted to do uh, a grappling, you know, whatever. Mm. So this is the same kind of thing. I would want to put in place a framework that people could use for whatever study they wanted to do. And I guess the rules would say has to be pre, I don't know, pre-1900, pre-1800, you know, martial art or something like that. Okay, so, but then, like, would would you consider jousting a martial art? I would. I would. Okay. Yeah, I would so, too, <laughs> but but not everybody would because it's it's more. I mean, the joust is basically a combat sport that has been artificial. I mean, it takes a military skill and makes a sport out of it. Technically, almost everything we do is that. Yeah. That's fair. So, I mean, I, I, I have no problem with that. You, you still have techniques. You, you have techniques that were used in actual battles that, that, they, that they demonstrate mm -hmm. on horseback. You can, depending on how you run your joust, it can be more or less closer to uh, a combat or to the very long lances that were the, the big, you know, uh, uh, demonstrations. Nonetheless, I would want to be more agnostic about make your case we have between two and let's say $15,000 grants that we can give you, make your case to us. And if you make your case well enough, then we'll give you a grant, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny how money makes all sorts of things a lot easier. Um, and I would, I would want this to kind of skew towards the um, areas with lower standards of living, lower costs of living. Yep. So like, you know, $1,000 to somebody living in, I don't know, Arizona is a different thing to $1,000 to someone living in, shall we say, Peru. 100%. Cost of living can be taken into account. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so that, that million dollars will will go a lot further in places which where, where the money is just simply goes further. Right, um, right. And so that would be part, part of the judgment, part of the thing would be like, yeah. you know, how will this impact you? I mean, some people might say, hey, $2,000 is all we would ever need for this, you know, weekend seminar, for instance, right? Right. Okay. Hmm. Uh, 
I'll say this, I'll say this. This is an interesting point. You know, I talk about this too. I would never want someone to get a grant that makes everything free for people. Right. And here's why. Throughout my 25, 30 years of doing this, I have grown convinced that students who have a little bit of skin in the game are far more focused and more interested and learn more than if you walk in for free and you're just like there. So even charging 20 bucks to enter to get to get into my seminar, for instance, I get a higher class of interested students than when I teach for free at places. Yeah. And there's, there's a big difference between um, choosing to teach for free for good reasons right. and the students getting it entirely for free. Right. Um, and it's like, you know, there, there are places I've been where, you know, $10 for a day's instruction was all that could reasonably be charged. And at the end of the day, I don't take any money for it because it's it's not enough money to be worth my, you know. I like to either get paid properly or not at all. I right. don't like to get paid a little bit, right? right? Um, but having that small fee, yeah, it just, it makes people, basically it requires a certain commitment from them, yep. which then makes the whole experience better for everybody. So yeah, I'm, it matches my experience anyway. Yeah, and it's the same, as, as I said, for Lord Baltimore's challenge is, if I open the tournaments up to anyone who came into Lord Baltimore's challenge, you get overwhelmed by people signing up. But if you if you make a bit of a price on them, it makes people think, do I really want to do that or do I just want to go and watch, you know? And so you you filter, you filter that. And part. and from what I saw at Lord Baltimore's challenge twice now, the people who were in the tournaments all really wanted to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And there were it was most of the people at the event, I think. I think so. I I I'm, I'm very happy with who has come and with the camaraderie, and you, you've mentioned this, and others have mentioned this, it's, it's showing that our two, on the one hand, very close and similar, on the other hand, very different groups have everything in common. They just need to come mm. together and see it, right? Yeah. So SCN, Historical Martial Arts. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's tricky because like, one thing I found when I was judging the tournament as um, a ring director was that the SCA tended to hit very light and the HEMA people tended to hit a bit hard. And so I would have to kind of force calibrate the HEMA people down a bit and force calibrate the SCA people up a bit to get to a kind of mutually acceptable standard where, yes, that hit was definitely made. Yep. Um, and yeah, but like the one thing I was, I was really pleased to see is the historical martial arts people very quickly picked up on the SCA thing of acknowledging hits against yourself. And I saw people like several times like disallow a hit that they'd been awarded. Like, actually, no, I didn't. I don't think I hit him cleanly enough, so I won't take that hit. Did you watch at Ismac? Did you watch the rapier tournaments there? Did you ever go and watch those? I, I've got a relevant the, story. The last, the last Ismac I went to was in two thousand and seven, I think. So okay. I don't actually recall. Probably, and I was probably involved in judging some of them, and I certainly did demonstration bouts at least one of the Ismacs. So, uh, so I don't, okay. The two I went to, which I think were like 2002 and three or three and four, something like that. I went to two in a row. I won both tournaments, both the rapier tournaments and Martinez ran it. I remember McDonald was one of the maestros. I remember, I think Sean Hayes was, I can't remember. Anyway, Sounds you, right. you might've been as well. I can't remember who all, we had one on each corner and then Martinez was, was the ring director floating. Okay. Okay. So the very first tournament, the three winners were all SCA fencers. Yep. As we got toward the finals, 
we were doing the same thing we do in the SCA. So one of my bouts was with Brian Wilson uh, of Darkwood Armory. We had an exchange. He hit my hand. None of the judges saw it, but I took a step back and I held my hand up. And Martinez walked up and he's like, everything okay? And I said, oh yeah, he hit my hand. And he looked around and all the judges kind of shrugged and he said, okay, you know, point to Brian, right? And then we had a couple other things where I think uh, James, the guy who came in third, called back a shot. He's like, no, I didn't get that shot. I don't, I don't want to be awarded that shot. And he got mad because the judges were like, no, you're going to take that shot. Right? <laughs> they gave him points and he was like, no, I didn't hit him. So the very next year, Martinez made a big speech at the beginning of the next tournament. And he said, last year's tournament was the most honorable I've ever seen with people acknowledging blows. And, and he said, I, I would love to see that again. And we did it again, you know. But so we were taking the SCA culture of acknowledge your blows and be honorable about it. And we were kind of blending it into ISMAC. And I, I was thrilled. It made me so happy to see that that... It started coming out, and you saw that in, in Lord Baltimore's challenge, just like you just said. You know, the HEMA yeah. people were like, oh, this is what we do here. This is what we're going to do. Yeah, because people respond to the culture that they're in. And yep. if that's the expected thing. And most critically, if that's... You, you get social credit for being seen to be honorable. Like, like people respect you for acknowledging hits against yourself. Yep. yep. Right? And I mean, that's... And that's a critically takes, important part of it. All it takes is one bad tournament where you're not calling blows to destroy your reputation for everyone to, to look at you as side-eye, you know? So Although it, I do know someone from the SCA whose arm was broken through their armor and who didn't call the hit because he said it was light. Yep. That's a broken yep, arm through plate, plate I've, arm. I've, he I've heard of that before, too. <laughs> I, I, I just can't. So Roger, when Roger Siggs was the, um, the Kingdom Rapier Marshal for his area, for his region... He put in place a rule, which is, it's, it's controversial, but I loved it. You could not call light without following up with, you need to hit me harder. <laughs> and so what this did is people would fight and someone would back up and go, light, you need, and they'd stop for a second and be like, no, that was good. That was good. You hit me <laughs> it, was, it wasn't perfect, but it, it proved a point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, brilliant. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dave. It's been lovely talking to you. Thanks, Guy. I always love talking to you. And let me know if I can help or throw you any more information for this. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Person's Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember, go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. And if you want to join in with the Q&A and get together this Sunday, that's the place to go. I'd like to thank the people who make this show possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I would have quit long ago. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque heart accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Sarah Lewis who is a neuroscientist specializing in the biology of childhood movement disorders and a longtime historical martial artist starting in the SCA in 1999, where she is known as Perrin de la Serena, 
and in historical martial arts since 2016 with the Phoenix Society for Historical Swordsmanship. She has written many articles on improving diversity and inclusiveness in historical martial arts and has written reports on the challenges facing women rapier fencers in the SCA. She has also produced a series of videos on applying the neuroscience of learning motor skills to teaching historical combat. So yes, we have lots to talk about. Make sure you don't miss it. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you in a couple of weeks. (laughs) 